last week, we talked about the heart attitudes, and we've started this 10-week series on heart attitudes, and what a blessing it is. Last week, uh, glorifying God over satisfying yourself. If you have this, I want to encourage you to bring this back every week. Take some notes. If you can fit it all in one page, sorry, Pat. Uh, you might have to go bleed into the next page and, and get some inserts uh, for, for more notes. But this is going to be some good stuff. I'm not going to be preaching all of these uh, over the, over the year, um, next 10 weeks, and we're going to miss a couple with the, the camping trip. But this week, page number two, uh, intimacy over religion. And, um, and I, I'm just going to talk a little bit about what religion is and how intimacy fits into that and got a, a couple stories at the end. Um, and so let's, let's just pray and give this time to God. Uh, Father God, what a privilege it is to stand uh, with you, before you, with our community here. And <laughs> I pray that whoever they're going to save would be, would be protected. Father, thank you that we can gather as a church here in this North City in the 105th and Aurora in a, a difficult place. I've heard pastors this past week just talk about Seattle being a pressure cooker for Christians, for pastors, for ministry, that we are a mission field on the edge of, of uh, the world in a lot of different ways, and that this, this Seattle is a, is a very tough field. Uh, the ground is hard, and the tilling is difficult, and it takes a long time for someone to to step into uh, giving their life to you. And I just pray, Lord, that you would use us as a community, a church community, a, a brothers and sisters community family to share your gospel and love with people, that we would invite people in to hear your word, and that through music and through community time and through the sermon, that your word would be spoken and heard and understood and that it would change something in us just a little bit even, Lord. We just need you. And I pray that long after people forget me that they would remember who you are, uh, remember the, the transformation that you have done in our hearts. Would you do that? And Lord, I thank you for this um, message from Africa, Rafiki. I pray that the whole mission organization would thrive and that you would bless them with the abundance of, of resources and people and Lord that you would send workers to that field especially our sister Annika would you please su uh, supply her financially so that she can do what uh, she feels like you've called her to do so Lord as we open your word we open up and understand would you please speak in the name of Jesus amen heart attitudes what does your heart posture have to say about your relationship with God? Over the next 10 weeks, this is what we're going to be exploring. 10 different heart attitudes. And so uh, glorifying God over satisfying self, intimacy over religion, obedience over rebellion, hope over cynicism, community over individualism, <clears throat> confidence over fear, gratitude over entitlement, compassion over judgment, sacrifice over selfishness, perseverance over abundance, this morning intimacy over religion. <clears throat> Let's read this. That's pretty small. Recognizing intimacy over religion, recognizing my faith as relationship rather than a religion. I will pursue a life of increasing intimacy with Christ through listening to the Holy Spirit and spending time in his word, community, prayer, and worship. 
There's some verses uh, I want to encourage you. I'm going to use a few of those this morning. But if you're going home and you're spending some time maybe throughout the week on this, going back over your notes, listening again, reading those verses, and kind of understanding the intimacy that you have with Christ. And we can look at the word intimacy, which for us may be a little awkward word, right? We don't have that in our music. But it's more of a relationship. That's where we're at, right? The relationship with Christ instead of this thing, this religion. <clears throat> attitude, remember, attitude is a way of thinking or feeling about someone or something that is reflected in our behavior. That's what attitude is. So Philippians 1 and 5, we, we're encouraged to have the same attitude as Christ Jesus had. And that of being like God, it humbled himself right, before God. So we are to have an attitude like Christ himself. And God gives you the responsibility and the ability to change your attitude. Responsibility and ability to change your attitude. So let's get our hard attitudes aligned as we build the house of the Lord, house of God together here in North Seattle. Um, I've talked about all the time, you're probably sick of it, but I talk about growing up in Idaho and and up above, we didn't have a, our water didn't come from the city, our drinking water or our, our, our watering the garden water or anything. Our water came from a mountain spring. My dad, uh, early on in the late 60s, went up and, and clear-cutted this, this spot in the wilderness and went up about 110, 120 feet above the house on the, the mountainside and found a, a mushy spot in the ground where water was seeping out of the rocks. And he took a pipe about an inch and a half, two inches, and rammed it into the, this, this is how I remember it. I'm not really sure how it happened. But he took this pipe and rammed it into the ground and outpoured clean water. And he poured it into a big basin, a cattle trough, I think, and it would fill up. And then on the bottom of that basin was a little filter and a pipe that went right into our house. That was the water that we grew up drinking. And so it was protected, not maybe as much as sometimes we'd like it, because we would go up there as kids and there'd be birds swimming in that water. And mosquitoes ugh, being harvested out of that water by birds and different things. And so that water, and then up above the water, above the spring, was where people ran cattle. And there's deer trails coming through it and all kinds of things. And at some point, my dad covered it up so that it was a little more protected, so that our drinking water was even more protected. Proverbs 4.23 says to guard your heart above everything else. Guard your heart. Because it's the wellspring of water. It is what's flourishing. It's the course that determines the course of your life. And so the the spring in in our in our um, house, we had to guard that so we could drink clean water and be healthy water and not full of giardia, which is not healthy. And so when I was a kid, we could walk through the mountains and drink out of every little stream or pool, just lean down and start drinking. And somewhere in the late 80s, something called giardia started popping up. And that was beavers or other animals bringing human waste into the streams. And this bacteria started going. And if you drank that, you would die on the trail someplace, which isn't an isn't, uh, optimal thing. The Bible mentions, though, the heart almost a thousand times. A thousand times. Kind of this heart thing. And it's not really actually talking about the heart, pump, pump, pump. It's talking about the gut. It's talking about the emotions. In essence, this is talking about the, the heart, the spiritual part of us, where our emotions dwell. That's our heart. The attitude of your heart directs your life. Pretty simple, really hard to live. 
The attitude of your heart directs your life. Listen to this. I tell my sons all the time. You can't always choose if you're tired or not. Truth. Sometimes you're tired. You can't always choose if you're tired or not, but you can always choose your attitude. 100% of the time. When somebody is tired and they're grumpy and they're going, oh, yeah, I'm just tired. Well, so what? You don't have to have a tired attitude. You don't have to have a, a grumpy attitude. We can always choose the attitude no matter what, no matter how tired we are. Um, you know, if you're married, you know this, right? You, you had this argument with your wife or your husband. Um, he got really upset about something, and you're arguing. The telephone rings. It's, hello, how are you? Happy is happy, right? And you stand back going, now, how come you can do that? And you can't before, you, no. We can choose our attitudes. We have the ability, we have the responsibility and the ability to choose our attitudes. Psalm 119.11, I've hidden your word in my heart, the word of God, so that I might not sin against you. We could look at that so that our attitude is right, is good, is a good thing. So when we're talking about attitudes of the heart, intimacy over religion, a relationship with Christ changes our attitude, the attitude of our hearts from just behaving like we're following a religion. Well, let's turn to John 21 first. One of my favorite passages. <laughs> I say that a lot because pretty much all of it is. Listen to what happens with Peter. This is at the end of Jesus' ministry. Jesus has died on the cross. He's given his life for us. He shed his blood and, and, and gave up his life for us to cover our sins, to, to die instead of us. He was buried then into a tomb. He was guarded by guards. And on the third day, he would push the stone back and he would resurrect. And not just resurrect so that, uh, um, and, and disappear, but he would resurrect to be with people. And he would see people, about 500 people actually, we would learn in Acts. And some of those people were his disciples. And so just before Jesus returned to heaven, he interacted with his disciples, and they were out on the, on the lake fishing. They went back to doing what they felt like they could do, and Jesus called them over to the shore, and in verse 15, we'll pick up the story, as they've come along up onto the shore, and, and Jesus had some breakfast ready for them, and in verse 15, after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter's like, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. So we'll keep going in a second. But it's important to remember that Peter had just denied Jesus just a few days earlier. When Jesus was in trial, Peter was asked, are you one of his disciples? And Peter would say, I don't even know the guy. And bring down cursing, and he would deny Jesus three times in a row. And he would, he would be in Jesus' greatest need, Peter would say, I don't even know that guy. I don't want anything to do with him. I don't want to be associated with him. He's not a friend of mine. Uh, we are not in relationship. The last three years are meaningless. I don't know the guy. I'm, I'm afraid for my life. I'm running away. And so Peter runs away, and later on, Jesus brings him back and says, Peter, Peter. And he asked this question of Peter, son of John, do you love me more than these? And somewhere in Peter's heart, we have to think, somewhere in Peter's heart, Peter's like, oh, here it comes. Here it comes. I knew, I knew this day would come. 
it's time for Jesus to smack me. It's time for Jesus to go, what did you do, right? And Jesus says, Peter, feed my lambs. And this is like Jesus telling him, Peter, I, I trust you, so, so feed my lambs, the helpless. Feed them. And Jesus then turns to him again. And maybe it's right in a row. Maybe it's after some conversation. We don't know. It says, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter's like, <laughs> didn't we just go through this? Yes, Lord. You, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Peter says. And a third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt. He's like, what are we doing here? Uh, so are you trying to get at something? His heart was hurt, aching. He says, Lord, you know everything. You know that you know that I love you. And I can see him as thinking about myself in this response. You, you know everything. And I, I, I see myself in rebellion against God, sinning against God in the moment, feeling a rebellious kind of shameful thought because I'm thinking about how great God is and how merciful and gracious he's been to me, loving and kind, and yet I rebel against him. And he comes to me and asks me this again. And I'm thinking, God, you know everything. You know I love you, but I love myself too. You know I love you. You know I, I love you. And Jesus ends with, then feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were young, you were able to do as you like. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, Peter, you're going to stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know what kind of death he would glorify God when Jesus told him to follow him. Peter was assigned something to feed sheep. He wasn't assigned a, a list of rules. He wasn't said, well, okay, Peter, here's the rules. Go start a religion. He was assigned to care for sheep, to care for them, to love them. You see, salvation is... Uh, the Holy Spirit's role, not our role. Jesus didn't assign Peter, go and get everybody saved. He didn't assign him to that. He said, feed my sheep. So the Holy Spirit would bring people to an, an intimate relationship with God, and Peter was assigned to feed them with the word of God. Peter, you're going to be martyred for caring for sheep, not for upholding a law, not for upholding rules, but for taking care of sheep. Peter, it's, it's about knowing me intimately, not knowing a list of rules and things to do and don't do. Peter, I'm assigning you to feed my sheep. So I feel like that's what Christians, we get in this, this rut of going, there's a religious rules that we have to follow. And even though we are Christ followers, we always kind of tip back into this religion. So let's talk about religion a little bit, okay? Well, in, on March 5th, uh, I, I don't, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the places. So a, a city in Mexico, on March 5th, just this past March, a city in Mexico, big stadium, soccer stadium, football stadium, there, uh, they were playing football in the stands. The audience went crazy. They start a, an epic brawl, if you will, in the stadium. This team against this team and tw sent 22 people to the hospital, three critically wounded. They took chairs and 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 
pieces of iron and their shoes, and they were hitting each other and beating each other up on the stands. They opened up the field so women and children could actually flee the stands and get onto the field. It all came down into the field. There was this big epic brawl between these two teams because one team thought they were much better than the other team who thought they were much better than the other team, and this big rivalry happened. It was a giant rivalry that went bad. Happens all the time. We somehow, with weak reasoning, we often believe our team is the best team, almost always. And we have these little punches, like little rivalries going on, and they're kind of safe and good until you add stuff like alcohol and you add other stuff, and all of a sudden, a bad call on the field, uh, a bad something, a, a bump, a foul, something happens, and a brawl breaks out. Actually, this happens. It's mostly how people view religion as well. Uh, my religion, my denomination is the best. And, and what we're talking about simply, it's okay. But actually, we're going to get pretty ticked off if you start putting down my religion or my denomination. Yet, little do most know anything about what they're even talking about or what they believe. Religion is at the base of all societal maybe even societal problems. Because of the possibility of making someone feel bad or punching us in the face or burning us at the stake, we have the social rule. Don't talk about religion. Don't talk about politics, right? That's the social rule. Because in the long run, we know that somebody's going to be burned at the stake if we start talking about that kind of stuff. And we can't do it civilly. For some reason, those two things, we cannot do it civilly because we have such powerful, passionate beliefs. And if we don't talk about it, we can kind of have this sense of going, eh, you know, let's pretend we all agree. Let's pretend everything's kind of good. And that's kind of how we run society. We walk down the street pretending everybody else is on the same page of us, and when somebody seems like they're not, we go ballistic, right? Until somebody walks out in a jersey that's a different color than ours, and we want to stone them, right? But Jesus walks onto the field 2,000 years ago, without a jersey on, and nobody knows what to do with him. And he makes everybody mad. He, he pisses everybody off, right? The fact is, all humanity bows to a religious ideology. All humanity. People who say they're not religious still bow to a religious ideology. That's how we are as human. Sport, entertainment, careers, science, politics, money. It's all humanity bowing to a religious ideology of some kind. Everyone is religious. Even those who say, I'm not really religious, that's kind of not true. We're all religious in our, in our action. Everyone follows a religious ideology and faith of some sort. We kind of carry that in our, our lives. Gandhi is known for saying a few things. In fact, if you were around in the 80s, there was a three-hour Gandhi movie that bored me to tears. I was probably a child, I think. Do you guys remember this the Gandhi movie? What's that? Oh, I don't even know, but I'll take your word for it. So, <laughs> but I, I don't know. It was a three-hour movie. In the 80s, there were no three-hour movies except for Moses. And uh, you sat through this, and there was an intermission in a three-hour movie. There was an intermission. They stopped the movie. We all went to the bathroom in this, I mean, we are in a little tiny theater. There was a one bathroom. It was crazy. I got back in there and sat again and fell asleep because it was a boring movie for me at a 13-year-old. But Gandhi is known for saying some important things. And one thing he says is this. The various religions, I, I'm not even going to try the accent. 
The various religions are like different roads converging on the same point. What difference does it make if we follow different routes provided we all arrive at the same destination? Gandhi was wrong. Abjectly wrong, in fact. His thought is like, hey, here's the, the ultimate spot and there's a big pyramid and all of these religions across the bottom. And in the long run, hey, folks, we're all heading to the same point. As long as we get to the same point, who cares what road we travel? Think of the, the problem inside of that. Who cares what road we travel? What if my road is murdering others and a million people in my, my dictatorship religion? Is that still getting to the same place? There's a big problem with that phrase. Well, this is a convenient phrase for a follower of a religion with 33 million gods and goddesses. It kind of works in really well because all my religions kind of fit together. In reality, all religions end up in very, very different places. If you look at the end point of all religions, they end up in a different place. It's kind of an upside down pyramid, I guess, and um, religions are going farther and farther and farther apart. If you look at the eternity or paradise of Many different religions, they end up in, in paradise getting all the stuff that was illegal on earth. They end up in, in a karmic reincarnation kind of system that's over and over and over or a merit system that we don't even know the merits that we have to do or get, but people are trying and, and checking off lists or, or now you're, you're the god of a planet with your wife and your kids. There's all these different things. In fact, they go farther and farther apart if they do anything. Very different places. And the pilgrim carries with him a journal, this journal, a journal with notes and check marks, something that you unwrap and you look and go, okay, let's see, can I do that? Uh, no, section one, uh, A, three, nope, nope, can't do that. We have this journal we carry with us around with notes and check marks, check boxes to make sure that we end up at a good place, not the bad place. Religion. Religions teach us two things. Obedience equals blessing. Disobedience equals cursing. That's religion in all things. And maybe your, your religion is science. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's politics. Maybe it's, maybe it's this or that or this is what it all teaches us. Obey, you get blessings. Disobey, you get cursing. But to make sure religions are following these rules well, we have to do something more. We have to create rules. Rules are necessary. And then over time, rules for rules are necessary, right? Which then require law enforcement to keep the rules of the rules. And it becomes this entangled mess that you're, you're adding an appendix and a footnote and a different, and this rule has a whole bunch of different rules associated with it. And people throughout the years will add on to the rules, maybe the Ten Commandments, and start adding 700 additional rules onto the rules. And we have an appendix, and now we have to have legal people who know this book very, very well called, well, they're called Pharisees and Scribes, the first police force. And so these police people, right, have to keep the rules. They have to be kept. Punishment must be metered out. If not, there can't be a blessing on people. Well, there can't be blessings on the tribe if we don't follow the, and obey and keep people in line. The author, Sky Jathani, says this, uh, that religion started because we were all afraid. Religion started from fear. Religions are how people in every culture respond to a world confused by chaos, plagued by scarcity, 
and corrupted by injustice. It's how we cope with our shared fear of death. To ease these fear, we all seek control over the world. So religions give us this sense of control. Religion is humanity's fear-driven reaction to the chaotic world around them. And so in everything, we can kind of see that. It's my trying to control the chaos. Creation had no fear in it. Creation had no religion in it either. There was no need for it. Nobody had something to create. People wanted to be like God, so instead of walking and ruling the earth with God, in relationship with God, intimately with God, they decided to walk alone and rule instead of God. Gardens represented this safe harbor, orderly, non-chaotic. It was beautiful and abundant, and there was care, and there was enough time, and it showed love and beauty inside of that. But the wilderness is an unsafe place. It's scary. There's scarcity. Uh, there's, it's ugly. It's, it's unsafe. It's, it's fear and hate-driven. Danger and fear then has become the impetus of religion to control that danger and fear and find and and create gods who would then control and help us. And the world is a chaotic, fear-drenched wilderness, and we must control it to survive. So we build walls to keep the enemy out. We build fortresses. We train armies. We make weapons. We create rules. We set up systems of worship and, and sacrifice and systems of what to do and how to sacrifice. I mean, people sacrificing their children or, or virgins at the, the, the volcano or, or different things like that just to appease the gods we've created. Then. But we discover that we cannot control the wilderness of the earth at all. We try, but we can't control it. We, we plant farms to control famine, but there's tornadoes and it wipes out the farm. We, we, we gr- raise cattle and have them inside of fences, but there's wolves that eat the cattle. There's houses that we, we control the outside and our surroundings, but they're burned down by wildfires, castles and marauders and towers and earthquakes and cities and volcanoes, and we cannot control the chaotic world around us. So maybe there's two families and they're in a, a valley together, and a beautiful valley, and there's a creek running through the middle, and there's farmlands on both sides, and they're farming and raising kids, and it's just a beautiful space. The sunrise, the sunset, everybody's farming. Well, soon the river trickles down to a little trickle, and it disappears, and and famine comes. The crops dry up, and one family looks across at the other family, and there's just a tiny bit of water, and both families are trying to protect their own family. And so they take the water, and they pull it over, and they put a fence up, and they they take and, and push that other family out. And this family, to protect their family, is now more afraid than ever. They have this chaos in the world that is pounding at their door. Fences to control our potential harm. Now we fear the wild, we fear the famine, and we fear that other family as well. And we have more problems than we did before. Religion gives us a sense of control over our lives. We put up boundaries, we put up rules, we put up laws to have control over our lives. We aptly create gods who take care of us, or we think, dependent upon our own confirmation bias, of course. We pray in the morning, we sacrifice in the morning to the God of the the sun, and the next day, sure enough, it's sunny, and so we know that that God we can call the sun God. We begin to pray to that sun God and offer 
sacrifice to that God, and we set up the system of religion. Rules and laws and prayers and sacrifices and rituals help us manipulate the cosmos, help us manipulate the chaos and the wilderness and bring it under control for ourselves so we can find protection in that. Religion then becomes a cosmic extortion meeting in the darkened back room of our own mentally constructed laundromat on a dark side of town. This bribery, extortion of the gods. How many of us have fallen to this? You think, as I'm saying all this, we're safe. We haven't fallen to that at all. Have you ever said, God, I did this and you didn't bless me? God, I've been part of this, but... Where's the outcome? There's a particularly infamous tweet by Stevie Johnson in 2010. Maybe you read this. He's a wide receiver, and they were in an overtime game, final few minutes. He misses a touchdown, the final touchdown that would have sealed the deal for them, and he tweets instantly, I praise you 24-7, and this is how you do me? You expect me to learn from this? How? I'll never forget this, ever, God. Thanks, though. Tweets that out loud. We have this system in Christianity, and it's still this rule-oriented, if you obey, you will get blessing. It's religion, where God is seeking something else. He's seeking relationship. He's seeking intimacy. It requires us to focus, to listen, to hear. It doesn't require us to do a list of rules, but just to hear, to abide with him. Come to find out, we can never do enough good to tip the balance to our favor. We try, but we can't do it. The older I get, the more I realize even my heartfelt deep good is laced with my selfishness and selfish motivation. I can never do enough good. I can never go through this and check all the boxes and get all the sub notes and all the, the backtracking and figure it all out. I can never do that and tip the balances to my good. It won't work. We tried it. As young men and women, we try it really hard. Well, I just won't do this for a while. I'll make sure God takes note of this, right? Then we grow up and realize none of that, none of that works. Church, Jesus has done something different. <laughs> He's given us something more than religion. He wants to restore the relationship before religion was started. The relationship where he walked with us, where he talked with us, where he had intimacy with us in a relationship as friends. So the Bible is not a document of rights and wrongs and a shoulds and should nots. And it should never be used in that way. How often do we use this text and we find those verses of the, where Paul points out, hey, following sinful nature is like this. And we take that list of sinful nature and go, okay, let's see. And we tack it up and we look at everybody and we start judging them in our mind. And then we go over to this column and start judging ourselves against these. But that's not what they're for. None of it was for that. Jesus wanted relationship. God wanted relationship with us through Christ. The Bible is not a document of rights and wrongs and shouldn't be used that way against people who do not know Jesus or for people who do know Jesus. Let's look at a few passages. Hosea 6, Old Testament, Old Testament prophet. Hosea 6, verse 6. God says to his people, 
who are doing all these things. He says, I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. God, even the God of the Old Testament is saying to the people, listen, stop trying to follow the rules and just know me. I just want you to know me. Because when you know me, the, the fruit of that is, a, is an abundant life. I mean, this, that's the fruit. It's not like if I know him, then I'll get. No, it's the outpouring. It's being connected to the vine, the fruit of that then. We don't have to figure out how to get that, vine, that fruit on there, just abide with him. God says, I just want you to know me. I just want you to walk with me, to be part of my world. Intimacy over religion. So what is your role as a Christ follower? Well, it's to know God. Full stop. Some people says that our, our role as a Christ follower is to glorify God. And, and I believe that. That's, that's true. But, but before that, our role as a Christ follower is to know God. To have an intimate relationship with God. To abide in God. Because out of that will, be, will come glorifying God. And if, our, if we hear over and over and over that your role is to glorify God, well, tell me what I've got to do, and I'll start checking the list off. How many of you are list people? I know there's some in here. And those of you who think you're not list people, you're probably list people in different ways. I love a good list because I can start checking it off. I can go from the top to the bottom, and, and then I can go back and look, I didn't get those. I'm going to strike these and get those things. I know where I'm going. That's why I love construction so much, to tell you the truth. I can go into a house that needs to be flipped, and I look and see everything that needs to be done. I put the list down. I start checking it off in order and timing and everything and getting the, the, the subcontractors in there and getting it all done. Ministry is just not that. I would love a list in ministry. It would help a lot. But that's how we live our, our life with God. We live it in a checkbox way. Well, we can flip over a couple couple books to a book called Micah. This is another one of the minor prophets. He, he spoke the words of God to the people of God. And in Micah chapter 6, verse 6 through 8, it says this. It says, what can we bring to the Lord? Listen to this question. Should we bring him like burnt offerings? Should we bow before God the Most High with offerings of yearly calves or young calves? Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil or sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? This is a hyperbole, of course. What are, what are we going to do? Is there enough? Can we check it, the list off enough? How many things can we do and go before God? What are we going to do? Verse 8, no, O people, the Lord has told you what's good, and this is what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God, to walk with your God. That's what he's asking us to do. All the rules of the Old Testament that we see there are for us as to help us understand what sin is and when we live in a our sinful nature, how that kind of creates this rebellion against God and how it divides us and that we can't we can't make it. We can never tip the balance for God to love us, right? But God loves us and he wants us to walk with him. So head into the New Testament here, and there's a, there's a book called Matthew. Matthew is one of, the, one of the gospels written by a guy named Matthew, of all things. And he was a tax collector in Matthew chapter 9. 
There's some verses here that I think are really beautiful. Um, Jesus added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. Hmm, could Jesus be quoting something? For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who are know that they are sinners. You hear that? The righteous part, the people who are checking the list off, I know I'm righteous because I have done these things. I have obeyed, so I deserve what? Blessing. Jesus is saying something else. I've, co I've come for those who are sinners, who know that they are sinners. It's a big shift. There's a story of a rich man and Lazarus. Um, and the rich man and Lazarus go to, oh, no, that's a different story. There's a story of two guys, and they go into the temple to pray. I can't remember their names. Maybe they don't have names. Anyway, there's a rich guy, and, or there's a Pharisee over here in the corner, and he's praying. And he's saying, God, thank you that I'm not like that tax collector over there. Thank you that I have kept the rules. I, and here's my checklist. In fact, look at this. Look at the boxes I've checked. Pretty nice. I can guarantee that guy hasn't checked any boxes. Maybe one. But look at this. Look at this, God. We have this and we hold it up to God. And that's what this guy was doing. But that guy over there, well, actually the tax collector stood over in the corner kind of sheepishly before God. He knew, see what that says? He, he knew he was a sinner. <laughs> and he knew he was a sinner before God. And he was like, God, I... There's nothing I can do. I'm helpless. I'm hopeless. I can't check off enough boxes. I've realized who I am. God, I need you. And Jesus said, that man went home justified, not this man, even though he tried to be justified. So Jesus is saying, hey, know your sinner and come have a relationship with me. Uh, one day the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus, verse 14. Uh, and the disciples said, why don't your disciples fast like we do? You hear that? Why don't your disciples keep the rules like we do, we Pharisees? Jesus replied, do wedding guests mourn while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away, and then they'll fast, <laughs> but for different reasons. Besides, who can patch old clothing into new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip from the old cloth leaving an even bigger tear before. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the old wineskins would burst from pressure, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine is stored with new wineskin. As Jesus was saying this, the leader of a synagogue came and knelt before him and said, my, father, my, my daughter has just died. And he said, but you can bring her back to life if you just come and lay your hands on her so Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, hey, there's something different coming here, something new. They're not keeping the rules that you've set, not keeping the law and the legalism law because there's something new. There's a relationship coming, a, a relationship with a Savior, a relationship to walk next to and walk with. And then Jesus would go on and demonstrate this with this, this daughter that he would go and raise from the dead. Jesus and his disciples got up and went with him. Just then a woman who had been suffering for 12 years, constantly bleeding, came up behind him and she touched the friend of his robe and she thought, if I just touch his robe, I will be healed. And Jesus turned around. When he saw her, he said, daughter, be encouraged. Your faith has made you well. And the woman 
was healed at that moment. When Jesus arrived at the official's house, he saw the noisy crowd and heard the funeral music, and he said, get out to everyone. And he told them, the girl isn't dead. She's only sleeping. The crowd, of course, laughed at him because they knew she was dead. And after the crowd was put outside, Jesus went in, took the girl by the hand, and she stood up. And the report of this miracle swept through the entire countryside. Something new was at f- afoot. It wasn't just somebody randomly praying to the God of the sun and hoping there was sun, or randomly praying to the God of the rain, and there happened to be rain the next day. Jesus was doing something miraculous in front of people as they were watching, not just happenstancely, but just as they were watching, this was happening in front of them. This new relationship, a faith in Jesus was happening, a relationship of walking together. John 15 says that we need to abide with Christ, right? Abide with Christ, and you'll produce these fruits. Galatians 5.22. And, and let's, just, let's, let's actually stop with this. This is really good. Galatians 5.22. The Holy Spirit produces. If you're abiding with Christ, staying with the Holy Spirit, you produce this kind of fruit. It just happens. You don't have to check off a list. This is what intimacy is. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit, love and joy and peace and and patience. Abiding in Christ, this Holy Spirit produces kindness. It it produces on the branch goodness. It produces a faithfulness. It, it It produces this fruit of gentleness. It gives off this this flower, this fragrance of self-control. And there's no law, there's no rules, there's no religion against these things. There's no religion to hold these things up. It's just about intimacy with Christ. How awesome is that? What if we were a church that changed and shifted our attitudes? We took control of our attitudes. I'm going to shift my attitude. My attitude would be, to have a relationship with Jesus, an intimacy with Jesus. There's relationship, and then there's intimacy, right? You understand that as a married couple. You have relationships with lots of people. You have intimacy with your husband or wife. There's a relationship, but there's intimacy with Christ, an abiding with, a sitting with. Have you ever sat for just a few moments and not moved? A pastor friend of mine a while back, this week, said to me, yeah, one, one of the ways I abide with Christ is just sit still for five minutes. I'm like, five minutes? I would go nuts. But he's like, yeah, just sit still for five minutes. No phone. In fact, phone's in the other room because it might buzz. No computer because it might flicker. Sit still for five minutes. You know how long five minutes is? <laughs> I mean, I want to do... I'm a doer. I want to check the boxes. I want to go. I want to get things done in five minutes. So maybe abiding in Christ. What if we had a heart attitude? I want to change so much, Lord. Maybe I'll just sit with you. Abide with you. How beautiful could that be? I just want to encourage you to abide with Christ. Maybe as we start worshiping here, we can just sit for a moment. Five minutes is a long time. Can we do that? It's 11.03 or 10.56. I'm not sure what clock is right. Let's call it 10.56 because then it's before 11. We're going to sit for five minutes. You good, Justin? Okay. Justin will play some chords so it's not silent. But 
Let's just say. talking about abiding with Christ, what I'm not talking about is clearing our thoughts and thinking about nothing, going into nothingness. The Bible says to set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Right, so this isn't a metaphysical meditation of some kind that some religions teach. It's setting our minds on Christ, setting our minds on things above. With all the noise around us, wow, it's hard to do that, isn't it? Um, been doing some some CrossFit working out with my my sons, and a, and a couple nights ago we we did a forty minute workout, one different workout every minute. So we're going through this cycle. We had the the music blaring like really really loud, and every minute one one workout would take about fifty five seconds. The the next one about thirty seconds. We have a little time to rest in between, and you know we we do this this cycle every minute for 40 minutes and the music was blurring we finished and we're we're stretching and kind of you know rubbing our aching muscles and my son says something really really good he says actually when you do this workout you don't want to do it with music on you want to do it without music because music actually just it it does something in us it teaches us the, the wrong thing it's kind of this motivator and motivation is a weird thing because motivation says if I obey, I get a blessing. When when we can just choose to do instead of always have these short bursts of motivation, right? Short bursts of motivation. You've seen the motivational speaks, talks, right? You go to a conference, motivational speak, and you walk away unmotivated. Well, you were motivated for about 60 minutes, but now I'm like, oh, I'm not motivated anymore. Now I got to get another burst. Burst. What if we just choose to abide, set our minds on things above, right? Choose to abide in the vine, and allow the Holy Spirit to produce the fruit. Wow! Instead of us working so hard to produce the fruit, and so I would encourage you to sit for five minutes in silence. See if you can find a place silent. Maybe that's the idea of going into your prayer closet undisturbed. Set your mind on things above in silence. Because that music is this motivator like in the beat, in the, the music but in a CrossFit like competition or something, there's no music. You can't have that. It's, it's silence or it's the crowd or it's whatever and so you've got to know how to produce in that way. you got to know how to work out strong without little tiny motivations. So I want to stand in this space where I'm going to choose my attitude before Christ, always. When I wake up in the morning, I'm going to say, thank you, God. I'm going to tell my face that I'm a Jesus follower, right? I'm going to tell my body that I'm a Jesus follower. I'm going to tell my life, you, you abide with Christ. 
put the journal away with the check marks, put that away, and abide with Christ. So much. What does Jesus call it? Freedom in that?